You're listening to Alcoholics Alive, where recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous share their experience on how they live AA as a way of life. None of our participants get paid or speak for AA. Here are your hosts, Shank and Wayne. Shank, I heard something funny at the meeting of the night. All right, hit me. This chronic relapser made a comment that he picked up a white chip, but he wanted to have a blue chip experience. You ever heard that? <laughs> no. What does that mean? It means that, you want the experience of being a year sober. A year sober? Yeah, so if you're out there, our group doesn't give out chips, but um, in our area, if you pick up a white chip, that's like a the newcomer chip. It's a surrender chip. Surrender. White is the international sign of surrender. Surrender to win. And then uh, uh, the blue chip here is for one year. So I guess maybe he was saying that he wanted to have a a year of sobriety without actually doing any work. That's what it sounds like to me. Probably what it was. Okay. I just went up to him and I said, hey, man, keep coming back. (laughs) Put it yeah, works okay. if you work it, and uh-huh. you live it every day, one day at a time. Put, Put the, the hearse, hearse in, in reverse. reverse. I knew you were gonna say that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey, welcome everybody. We're glad that you're you're listening. We're gonna jump right to our guest. We got a a, a great guest today. He, uh, well, I'm not sure where he's living now. Virginia, Maryland, D.C something like that. We'll let him tell you, but, uh, Mike is our uh, guest. Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. Morning, everybody. Uh, my name's Mike. I live in Vienna now. I used to live in, oh, you're in Vienna, Virginia. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. We used to lose the football to you all the time when I was in Springfield. Y'all killed us. Oh, anyway. against Vienna. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I played, I played football. Out- Outside issues. Go ahead. (laughs) We're not that other podcast that does that. Thank you. (laughs) All right. Oh, my. He might get his his one feeling hurt. Um, (laughs) Anyway, I have a spry date. It's August 13th in 1989. Um, I uh, I live in Vienna, as I said. I... um, I have a dog in the background that's barking. Uh, it's okay. Just roll on. <laughs> and so, but August the 13th of 89 wasn't the first time I came to AA. I arrived in Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 19. Um, by the time I was 17, though, I had started to need a drink more than I knew. Um, I was in the local parking lot. I didn't look my age, so I had to get other people to buy me beer, and I asked somebody to get me some beer, and they didn't do it fast enough. I'm like, are you going to go get my beer? And she was like, what, do you need it? And we just kind of laughed, but down deep inside, I'm thinking, yeah, I need it. You need to go get it right now. And that's, I was 17. By the time I was 19, I had started getting in even more trouble and arrived at my first Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, I didn't stay. My father had died sober. My sister was sober at that time. Um, but I didn't stay. 
that next year, my father died when I was 19. And that next year I went crazy. And by the end of that year, by the time I was 20, I was looking at prison. I wanted no parts of prison. So I went to uh, long-term rehab. Um, nice. And that, the irony there is, is the rehab was longer than the time I would have done in jail. <laughs> yeah. rehab, it was second chances. It was 36 month program at that time. And they were looking at, I was looking at two years backup time and I sponsored some jailbirds and they told me I might've done a year or 18 months. I didn't want to do a day, forget all that. But anyway, um, and, and that I, I don't know about you, but this is the early eighties and we were doing what you should do, which is pirate HBO at that time. And, um, and you know, the late night commercial, right? You get the commercial. You got a problem with drinking and alcohol, call this number. And I, you know, do a bong hit and go, sure, right? (laughs) Two weeks later, I called the phone number. The intake worker said, when can you come? I said, well, how about in about a month? And she's like, no, you need to come tomorrow. And I'm like, okay, how about two weeks? So, um, but I arrived about two weeks later in April of 83 anyway. And this guy looked at me and he said, you're going to do life imprisonment in prison in the installment plan. And I knew he was right down deep that place. You don't talk about, I knew he was right. Anyway, I got out of second Genesis, um, went on my merry way. I didn't want to go to AA. Um, I went to a few meetings, but I really didn't want to go. So I didn't go. And eventually, You know, if you don't have, in my case, right, if I don't have an answer, at least in second Genesis, I had an answer. I was in a controlled environment. So I had an answer. There was, so getting high or drinking really didn't um, come to me. But when I was out running around again, I'm not doing anything different. I'm not in some other environment with any kind of answer. And eventually I'm going to do what I need, know to do. And I drank again. I was, um, I was out on, um a date and my date said she wants wine coolers i'm like damn i do too (laughs) and there we go you know nine months before that i was hanging out with my buddy he was he bought some cocaine and you know he was gonna sell it and i'm just hanging out right well we did all the cocaine because that's what happens you know so that i just i wasn't gonna stay sober and i was back out there for three years i did what i always do i get arrested for drunk driving I'm very good at that. And um, and then that started kind of the, the journey because by August or, yeah, right around August of 89, the beginning of August, they um, had me in this, uh, come on, brain work, in this um, alcohol class down in Manassas, Virginia. And they said no drinking on Thursdays is what I heard. I had suggested no drinking for 17 weeks, but I definitely heard no drinking on Thursdays. So I go in and um, they do the little eval thing. And he goes, hey, did you stop drinking? And I says, no, you said no drinking on Thursdays, right? (laughs) And this guy goes, if you don't stop drinking for the next six weeks, I got to send you back to court. Mm -hmm. I'm pissed, but I'm not mad at this guy. I'm pissed because there's no way on God's green earth I'm going to stay sober for it. It's just not going to happen. I'm not going to not drink for the next six weeks. It's an impossibility. 
And though I didn't stay sober, I, I believe in retrospect, that's when I surrendered to this idea of powerlessness. I didn't have the words. I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the education of it. But looking back, I think that's what happened. And then my last drink was, it was just, eh, it was a drink, you know, drinking some beer with my buddy Saturday night. I didn't get hammered. I didn't get any trouble. We were just at my house drinking. It's just, uh, you know, one of them kind of nights. And I woke up on Sunday, August 13th in 1989. Um, I'm behind on court slips for this class thing I got to do. I start doing the math. I'm like, there's, I don't got enough days to do all these court slips. I'm going to have to, you know, double up on the weekends. I'm like, this really sucks. But that night, that Sunday when I got up, I wasn't necessarily thinking about AA. And I definitely wasn't stay, thinking about staying sober for the next 30 plus years. But I wandered into a meeting at Alcoholics Anonymous on Sunday night of August 13th of 1989. And nobody said leave. And the meeting was on willingness and somewhere in my diluted brain, I knew if I could be willing long enough, I had a shot at this thing, though I didn't know what I was looking at. I didn't know I was looking at the answer I'd sold my soul for. I didn't know that, you know, the, the great reality is the topic of this is going to be today. I didn't know I was looking at it. I had no idea. And like I said, nobody asked me to leave. And when I left that night, if you'd have told me I was going to stay sober from that day to this, I probably would have done like I've always done, whether it was quitting smoking or quitting whatever, right? I'll do that tomorrow. I would have gone down the street and gone to a bar probably had one last drink. But nobody said any of that stuff. Nobody, you know, I just went to that meeting. I went home and I went to another meeting and I met my first sponsor. It was a Tuesday night, that following Tuesday. And this guy did for me what people do. They, he asked me my name. He introduced himself. And I did something different. I didn't growl at him. I actually said hello back. Because, I mean, I would go to meetings before I got sober and get mad because nobody would talk to me. And I was about as approachable as a porcupine. I mean, I just was not approachable. <laughs> then I'd be mad, right. right? Nobody talks to me, right? But this guy did what we did. He said, hey, I'll do whatever it takes to help you stay sober. And and I don't know why I bought it, but I believed him. And um, And he got me to get up and go get a white chip that night. The woman who gave me my white chip, she's still sober. Um, I believe my first sponsor is still sober. I, I don't know. It's been years since I've talked to him. But there's people from that meeting who I see occasionally from that very first meeting 32 years ago, 30, oh, 34 years ago, right? And, um, but that started my journey. And, and like I said, I didn't know what I was about to walk into, but I wouldn't trade it for nothing. So how no. old were you when you finally got sober in 89? Okay. So you said your first meeting was at 17? 19. 19. 19. At 17 was the first time I knew I needed. And wow. And I started drinking and doing drugs when I was sixth grade. And, so I guess I was 11 or 10. Mm -hmm. And you've been sober Every day during the week, not just Thursdays. <laughs> yes, correct. <laughs> yes, okay. <laughs> we just wanted to clarify, make yeah, sure. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Just make sure. Shank, what's our topic today? 
Well, as Mike just, you know, beautifully weaved into his share, our topic today is the great reality. So this comes from page 55 in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, here's what it says. It says, actually, we were fooling ourselves for deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It may be obscured by calamity, by pomp, by worship of other things, but in some form or another, it is there. For faith in a power greater than ourselves and miraculous demonstrations of that power in human lives are facts as old as man himself. We finally saw that faith in some kind of God was part of our makeup just as much as the feeling we have for a friend. Sometimes we had to search fearlessly, but he was there. He was as much a fact as we were. We found the great reality deep down within us. In the last analysis, it is only there that he may be found. It was so with us. So that's pretty powerful stuff right there. It is. The great reality. And the G and the R and great reality are capitalized. So I know people have thoughts and feelings and whatever toward that, but um, it is capitalized for those listening who do not know. It is capitalized. It so is what capitalized. does the what does the great reality mean? What do you think, Mike? The, I mean, my my this this guy named Frank was my sponsor for twenty years, and um, he he used to look at us and go, "Sobriety is the great reality." Really, that was the. Living in, in living sober, being in the world sober, and enjoying it, and and being a part of it is the or he would almost say the final frontier. Between that right, he was a Star Trek nut. But um, the the great reality in my life is so. Let me go this way with this. I would read this and I would be like, okay, like all right, whatever you say. Because I wasn't really jumping up and down to get on the bandwagon of God. That just wasn't my thing. Um, But in my case, anyway, I just kept doing what was asked of me. And um, so I didn't necessarily, and my sponsor was wise enough to not really push this on me. And he just let me have my experience. So what I found, like I said, was more, I found this a great reality of life and being with people and feeling connected to this community and being a part of it. That was my great reality. I don't know. I mean, I started to have these things that I would call um, God bumps, I guess, um, for lack of a better word. I would just, sometimes I would be driving around when I was new and I'd just kind of get this chill of almost gratitude of like, hey, maybe there is something out there that's looking out for me. And I, I just, I would get those kind of things. Um, but I, I've never really investigated this this idea of this, this God idea down into me, like is inside of me. I never, that's, again, that's not my experience. My experience more has been like experience of like, I do these things and these things have happened. 
Well, this chapter, We Agnostics, was written for you because that is, in a nutshell, what it says. Right, and and page 45, right. It says, if you take these steps and do these things, you will find this power. And and so I didn't, like I said, it was many years before I saw that, really understood that line in the book. And and, And it talks about, it'll give you the power to solve your problem. And my problem is alcoholism. So what I have always been told by sponsors is that anytime um, something is capitalized, such as this in the book, it is referencing a higher power. It is referencing God. Okay. Um, I can swallow that. That's fine. What I found interesting, the reason I included the first paragraph as well as the second is um, because it says deep down in every man, woman, and child is the fundamental idea of God. It does not say that God is within me, higher power is within me. But then when it references the great reality, it says we found the great reality deep down within us. So it sounds to me like, which, you know, I haven't ever really considered this until I was reading it for this episode. I haven't dissected it. Uh, If you've listened to this podcast for a while, you know, um, I don't claim to be the smartest person and even in this Zoom. Okay, but uh you probably are, but go ahead. To, to me, it is <laughs> referencing in a different way to be more inclusive toward people who may not believe in whatever, capital G, God, whatever, uh, Christianity, religion. Um, it is just like kind of doubling down on that and saying, hey, it is, we found it deep within us. Bebot? I can, I can, you know what, I can go with that i i again i don't necessarily have a big um dog in this fight of that though looking at it um and and i think in bill's story it references this this part as well um it may be obscured by calamity pomp worship of other things and and bill talks about when he remembered the uh when he was at the cemetery looking at the 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 tombstone and like God was there and then it got blotted out by worldly affairs, blah, blah, blah. Right. Yeah. Um, so as I became, as I went through the process, the calamity and the pomp and the, the worship of other things within my life became removed through the steps. So then something had a, an ability to, to come into my life. Um, and maybe like you said, this idea, cause I think, I, I think I can agree with, you know, there was some type of idea that there's got to be something going on, you know, and I was even <laughs> thinking about it today, like, you know, occasionally I have these random thoughts like, you know, who figured out, like, what mushrooms to eat and which ones killed, <laughs> you know, right. I'm like, I, I have these, <laughs> these thoughts occasionally, right? So, um so, you know, something started all of this so that I, I mean, that's that's I, I'll go there. I'm, I'm willing to go there. I know there, there has to be something. But I also as a sponsor and dealing with newcomers and stuff, I don't push it real hard, like how they define it. I'm kind of like, hey, Wait, the book tells us that, too. You yeah. know, mm-hmm. I, I think that's one of the great wisdoms of Bill. Bill, he spends so much time. Um, the first few chapters convincing us we're powerless and convincing us that we're crazy 
and that we need some type of power. But he, in no way, shape, or form have I ever felt like he tried to tell me what that had to be. Because if he did, I wouldn't be here. I do know that. What do you think, Jerry? Well, I th- it's um, I've often thought it, it was interesting that the book tells us that we're powerless, that we don't have any power. And then in the same chapter, it tells us that the power or the, or God or the great reality, depending on how you want to read that is within, is inside of us. It's always seemed like a contradiction to me. Mm-hmm. I know that's probably over analyzing it. When, when I took, I mean, when I was brand new and took the steps, I didn't think a whole lot about it. And I, you know, I was like, probably both of us. I mean, there wasn't a whole lot of analyzing or a lot of conversation. It was, Hey, are you willing to believe in something? I said, yes. And I moved on and I started taking actions and then a belief came to me. Now I, I thought I had a belief. I was involved in a, in a church and we did some things in that church. And I kind of went with that when I first got sober, um, but I would later not. I, I would later come to appreciate both of these paragraphs because I think it it kind of gets at the the crux of part of our problem and the solution. In that it was it was presented to me that hey, maybe stop looking outside of yourself for the solution, and that maybe there is the idea of of God and, and love and power inside of yourself. And, um, I later would come to understand, this is just my take on it, that there's a spirit inside of all of us. There was a, a spirit inside of me. I covered up with alcohol and drugs and selfishness and self-centeredness and fear and all that other stuff. And that I got to get rid of all that stuff inside of me that blocks me off from that spirit that's inside. And that's really what steps four through nine are designed to do that. If I take those actions and, and, you know, identify those things inside of me and, and, and disclose them to some to somebody and then become willing to try to make those things right. Then that spirit that was always there just comes, it, it awakens just like the 12 step says. Now I know that's probably a little mystical for some of you, uh, but <laughs> That's just how I came to to understand it, and that that you know, I got to stop looking out here for the solution, and I got to I got to look right here, and that you know some of that shrapnel that we've covered on other seasons, you know that it's an inside job, and the problem is really me. I mean, some of that stuff is actually valid. That and for me to get better, I can get better regardless of what anybody else does, and you know, the idea of God of just, of just love and, you know, uh, that, I think that is inside of us. We crush it by the way we live. This reinforces for me, um, in, in considering it, that your higher power probably shouldn't be your sponsor or a doorknob or, you know, the, the spirit, the power that flows within the great reality should probably be something, um, 
that is not a person or an inanimate object. And this reinforces to me that it's already deep within me. Like I already have that if I quit covering it up with pomp, worship, calamity of other things. Like it definitely cannot be something that is, um, a lot of people say, you know, the doorknob or the yeah, group of drunks popular. Yeah. or the what have you. Grace, grace over drama. Drama. Grace over drama. I'm going to go back to what Shank said at the beginning. Because again, as I, and I'm, I've been listening and thinking about it, it just says the fundamental idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It doesn't say God's in me. It doesn't, I mean, it, it just says the idea. And what I am tasked to do, I believe, is to be willing to take a journey. To be to find what it is. And again, I, I, I in my own particular situation, I stay out of you want to call it a doorknob? I don't care. You want to call it whatever? I don't care. Just do the work. Because again, my experience has been if I do these things, like you said, Jerry, the fear and the resentment and all that gets gets relieved through the steps and you know, four through nine. And as a result, my spirit does awaken to the world around me. And I do, I live to better purpose as a result. And, um, you know, and, but still to this day, I can, I can say, yeah, I still have these ideas of God down, you know, I think about inside of me. Um, But it's just the idea that with the real question and because I just listened to it yesterday, I'm probably going to reference a bunch from Rachel, you know, am I willing to do the work? Am I willing to like actually go out there and, and, you know, you guys mentioned faith without works is dead, right? If I can think about it all day long, but am I actually going to go out there and try to help people? I'm actually going to go out there and live a better purpose. Am I actually going to go out and do take the actions necessary to both live with less fear and less resentment and less, um, you know, wreckage of my past still out there. Am I willing to clean all that up so that this spirit, this, this, this spirit inside of me can show for people to be like, Hey, something's going on here for the newcomer to see that. Well, that brings up a good point. So Wayne, let me ask you a question. Um, Repeatedly throughout my sobriety, you know, I've heard that God has restored my sanity. It's been a miracle of healing. Why do I still make insane choices and decisions? (laughs) You're asking me or Mike? I'm asking I, I, you. I'd like to hear what Mike has to say about it. Because it, I, I get afraid. It's almost that simple. I get afraid and I get what I want or losing what I had. I mean, a sixth step tells me that really clear. It's my fear. I, to me, anyway, that, it's just I'm afraid of it and of not getting something usually. So I like, or the other thing is if I start analyzing something in a vacuum, and I have no outside influence on it to like kind of check my brain. 
because I will always, in my case, I will always default to the selfish action. I always have. So I'm not going to say that I've always like skipped over this chapter. I have never personally had uh, an issue with believing in a higher power, God, all of that stuff. I've done a lot of things over the course of my sobriety to continue to grow and connect with that higher power. However, um, in We Agnostics on page 57, it says, save for a few brief moments of temptation, the thought of drink has never returned. And at such times, a great revulsion has risen up in him. Seemingly, he could not drink even if he would. God had restored his sanity. And I have always been told that the sanity, uh, a lot of times that it's referencing in the big book, is being restored to sanity concerning alcohol, concerning taking that first drink, um, even though I know like everything I mean, I don't, I personally don't know cause I black out, but just knowing that, uh, I'm going to continue to drink until I pass out and that I'm not going to know what happened. Yeah. So I, I think that that, I mean, the book is pretty clear where it is referencing the insanity of the first drink and the mental obsession and you know, that we don't have the, any defense against the first drink. I think the steps are designed to help us come into a relationship with the power grand ourselves where that obsession is relieved. So that sanity, meaning the inability to stay away from the first drink, I guess is restored. Um, so why do we continue to make bad choices? Because we're human and we, we suffer from selfishness, selfishness and self-centeredness. However, I would I, I think that if we continue to live alcoholically, we're probably going to, the insanity is going to return and we'll probably drink again. Oh, yeah. And I think that, I think that once we get sober, I mean, the, the rest of the steps are designed to help us learn how to practice principles in all of our affairs, learn how to help other people you know, I don't think this, I don't think it's all, it's about getting good, but it is about putting ourselves in a position where we can be helpful to people. And what well, says it in, was that step seven? Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Right. So that would be character def- defects and personality flaws and things like that. That's not just booze. It says, can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something, we will not let go. We ask God to help us be willing. So that's in the steps, in step seven, right? It's telling us that, hey, we got to basically change everything. Yeah. Right? Well, it, it you know, so, it, again, it, sorry. Well, it doesn't mean we're not going to make bad decisions or bad choices. Right. But but there is an implication that we're going to start living different and try to make mm-hmm. better decisions and better choices. And, and when we don't, we clean that up. Step 10. It, it, so I've been. This I So if you know where you read about sanity had been restored, if you go to page 85, it talks about we've been placed. The problem's been removed. Okay, and by the time you get to 85, you're 
you know, well through a lot of the steps, right? And, um, but I can't go on living a selfish, self-centered life and expect to not want to drink. I mean, that's what drove it, how I lived, the actions I took. There was no, um, there was no peace for lack of a better frame of mind, for lack of a better way of explaining it. I always kind of twitched. I had this thing inside of me that was never satisfied, never fulfilled, right? And then I took all these actions trying to, to fill that God-sized hole, as was explained to me. But it had to be, all that had to be cleaned up. And once I cleaned it up and then I quieted down on the inside, I didn't feel a need to go drink. But if I start lying, cheating, and stealing again, because I got to start hiding again when I live like that. I got to live in the dark. And I can't afford that. So it's referenced several times in the book and in the steps um, in our literature that you have to have a conception of a higher power. And you've stated, Mike, you know, beautifully that you don't dictate that for your sponsees. Um, for me, I would tell them like, it cannot be a doorknob, you know, like it just, um, I can go and remove that doorknob. I can do that, you know? So I would encourage them to kind of try to find something else, but what if you have someone that just would prefer to remain an atheist? Like, what do you do? What do you do in that situation? So. Good question. So the, the okay, an atheist, as I recall, and I'll pull out a dictionary if I need to, but an atheist is someone who, who says the proof of God cannot be. The idea of God cannot be proven, correct? Or is that agnostic? We'll roll with that. Okay. Yeah. So, again, I could go at it two ways. I could be like, well, the proof is in the pudding. I mean, you're staying sober. You're taking these actions. Something's going on. Mm-hmm. You believe in that. See, I, I, I will start looking, you know, to help them find some off-ramp if they'd like it. If they want to stay atheist and they don't want to believe in some Judeo-Christian God or Buddhist God or whatever it is, that's really none of my business. And I will, people who know me know I will defend somebody's right to be there because I, I get really, I can get really militant with people who are like, you have to believe this or that. I'm like, that's just don't go there with me. It's not a good plan because I think that's wrong to do to the newcomer. Um, but if somebody wants to be an atheist, it's really not my business. Because like I said, I'll try and give them an off-ramp like, well, do you believe there's some power within Alcoholics Anonymous that, and I don't care what you define it as, do you believe there's a power going on here in this sense of community, in this thing that we do together, what goes on when we come together as a group at a meeting, these, like, I've seen impossible situations amended as a result of Alcoholics Anonymous, do you believe in what goes on there? You know, that's that's where I go with it with people who want to kind of argue with me sometimes with it. I'm like, and then I just back out of it. I'm like, I'm like, I'm not going down that road with you. You can do that. That's fine. Just keep doing this. So also, and we agnostics, page 45. Yeah. 
It says if a mere code of morals or a better philosophy of life were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have recovered long ago. And I um, have never been of, I don't know, the intellectual side of AA. That's no secret to anyone who knows me. But I just find this line very encouraging. I've sponsored many women who thought they were agnostic or atheist or maybe still were. But when they talk about the experience that they've had, you can tell that something has changed within them. And when they talk about the experience they have, you can tell that they believe in something. Sometimes it's almost like they've been that agnostic or atheist for so long that they're just not willing to give it up. Mm -hmm. And in that case, you know, whatever. It also goes on to say, which you mentioned, Mike, lack of power. That was our dilemma. We had to find a power by which we could live. And it had to be a power greater than ourselves, obviously. But where and how were we to find that power? Well, that's exactly what this book is about. Its main object is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. And to me, even as someone who has never had like this big issue, I believed God was not for me, that maybe God was not going to help me, which is, you know, almost just as hard or worse than not believing in anything. I'm just like, you know, I believe in this higher power. I just don't believe that this higher power is going to do anything for me. Like evidence in my life to me when I arrived at AA was that, well, this higher power is just isn't going to, it's fine. It works for other people, but like my circumstances, it's not going to work. I even find and still do a lot of solace in this of, Hey, that's exactly what this book is about. Read this book, do what it asks you to do, and you'll find a power greater than yourself. It really doesn't matter if you choose to call it God or not, higher power, spirit of the universe, Bosch Universal, like all of these things, the great reality it references in the book. Czar of the heavens. Czar (laughs) of the heavens. It does say, you know, that you we had to find a power by which we could live, and it had to be a power greater than ourselves. And I personally, I like that. Like, just give it to me straight. Tell me what I got to yeah. do. Yeah. Well, and then it's kind it, go ahead. Wayne. It's really not. So it's really not important how you start. Mm-mm. So, I mean, you just need to know that you're hopeless and that you need help and you got to be willing. Um, I mean, as you were talking, I mean, I don't know of anyone that I have helped with the steps that got on the other end of them and continue to proclaim that they were atheists. Um, now I have helped some folks that were militant atheists and clung on to that and they're not sober anymore. Um, so I, I guess, you know, if you, if you take the steps, then, you typically come to believe in something and it doesn't have to be a a deity Mm -mm. like, like a lot of people think about, but, but I've never, I've never known anyone that actually take the steps that stayed sober and stayed active in our program that did not eventually say that they believed in something. Now I know we've got a pamphlet that says otherwise called the God word, but even if you read those stories, they still reference something. They do. And, and that's what I, don't I find wanna, so interesting. I don't interesting. want to derail us. I don't want to derail us here, but. Uh, <laughs> I mean, So if you go um, to page 47, 
When, therefore, we speak to you of God, we mean your own conception of God. This applies to to other spiritual expressions yep. which you find in this book. Do not let any prejudice you may have against spiritual terms deter you from honestly asking yourself what they mean to you. And again, to how I read that, Bill gives you the off ramp. Yeah. He gives you the, the vehicle to just go look. And again, my first sponsor, well, my, it was my second sponsor, Frank. I mean, he read to me Sermon on the Mount. He, you know, he, and he was afraid, you know, Thunderbolt was going to come up, you know, hit him in the head at any time for how he lived. Right. He didn't. He, God was not. He was not a big fan, but he introduced me to these ideas that were in these different books. And as we started exploring and, and really, as you started, we started interacting with people and learning how to live with other people and be in less conflict, right? Then these ideas started to work in my life. These principles that we've talked about that mentioned, right? And again, I didn't go back to, you know, the resentment and the fear and the anger that would block me, block my spirit. Um, but again, you know, he never told me it had to be, you know, I have people say, like you said, Shank, capital G, you know, they, they attach some meaning to the capital G. Well, it could mean something completely different to somebody else. And that's just fine. So I, I like I said, I'm not, I'd rather the new, the, I'd rather the person I'm working with go make their own journey. And me encourage them to do that journey. When they come to me with resentments or fears or things that they've done, we're going to do what the book says. We're going to analyze our resentments. We're going to look at our fears and we're going to clean up whatever we've done. You know, in the 10th step, we're going to clean it up. Um, and I sponsor people who are, you know, not who are of Islam in nature. Right. And I definitely don't try to tell them how to practice it or anything like that. Yeah, and I don't think that that's the yeah. point we've been trying to say yeah. either. No. Oh, I don't either. I don't either. I'm yeah. just saying I, I really want people to search. Mm -hmm. If you're going to rely on your own intelligence <laughs> and, your own, and your own power and your own philosophy and your own morals, you're probably not going to stay sober. Hey, there are some very brilliant did. people in Alcoholics Anonymous. There really are. And um, I hate to see anyone struggle getting sober but it does seem like you know i know a couple of people in and around this area that still claim that they are atheists but when you hear them talk about their experience when you hear them tell their story you know you you hear it in in the things that they say that they believe that there's something out there and so and I, I always bet, think I, that that is so nice to hear i bet also if you watch them their actions demonstrate that far more than their words. Oh, for sure. And there's right. one, and I have told him many times, like, hey, yep. just drop the whole, I get it, drop the whole you're a militant <laughs> atheist thing here. Like, you're agnostic at best, but like, come on, man. The right. way you talk about your life experiences, there is something working here, and it's amazing. And he just laughs, you know. He doesn't take offense to that at all. Yeah. Shank, what do you think about moving on to Big Book Shrapnel? Let's hit it. What's our first one? All right. For big book shrapnel number one, we have the Belladonna Treatment. 
So this comes from page seven. And it says, my brother-in-law is a physician, and through his kindness and that of my mother, I was placed in a nationally known hospital for the mental and physical rehabilitation of alcoholics. Under the so-called belladonna treatment, my brain cleared. Hydrotherapy and mild exercise helped much. Best of all, I met a kind doctor who explained that though certainly selfish and foolish, I had been seriously ill bodily and mentally. So... If you two do not know, or if uh, anyone listening does not know, belladonna refers to a plant that is also known as a deadly nightshade. The leaves were used for medicinal and cosmetic purposes. The plant contains alkaloids, which have various effects on the human body. So the belladonna cure was a detox method um, used to treat alcoholism. Hmm. Belladonna treatment. The belladonna treatment. I can tell you that I'm, not that I'm aware of, I've never had any belladonna. (laughs) I like that he he said his brain cleared. uh, Yes. I I often thought about that. His brain cleared and he got into a hot tub, hydrotherapy, mild exercise. So supposedly, you know, people would say that it helped with cravings, like alcohol cravings or withdrawal symptoms. So I don't know that that's, he said his brain cleared. Maybe, I don't know that that's what he was referencing necessarily, but. You ever had any belladonna, Mike? Well, I just, you know, I'm at a computer, so I start looking stuff up, right? Um, But apparently... The belladonna treatment was developed by, you're going to love this, Charles Towns. Mm, of course. Of nice. It's a proprietary treatment. Charles Towns, where Bill went. So, it, you know, it, it, I've never had any belladonna, but that looks to me like where it came from. And it says, care and control of the alcoholic. Hmm. There's an article by some doctor in 1912. So for those of you who don't know, deadly nightshade is a plant. So nightshade is a plant. And um, I don't know that we could necessarily replace belladonna treatment because it was just a treatment. But I do have, um, if you all like it, I do have a modern replacement or a translation that we could use um, in our translated big book. What? What you got? Um, the marijuana maintenance program. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Also a plant. People do also yes. think that it clears their mind, helps their cravings. Absolutely. All of those things. So marijuana maintenance program. Marijuana maintenance get... program. Hmm. I always got thirsty when I smoked marijuana, I'm just saying. Right. <laughs> oh man, how about uh What's the other, like, Anabuse and uh, yeah. Naltrexone, they, they're using that. Yes. Um, marijuana maintenance, maybe some edibles. Marijuana, some oh, THC edibles. maybe. Oh, yeah. the edibles without THC. How about that? There you go. Isn't there that, you go. Isn't that allowable? Yeah. Mm. I know plenty of people uh, that take We could go down that. a huge rabbit hole with that. Yes, we could. <laughs> Don't get Jerry started. Oh, no. Jerry I, and I are probably on the same page. So, do you all want to keep the belladonna treatment or translate it? 
keep it. You got to keep it. Yeah, we got right? we got to keep it. Yeah. Bill's story. You got to keep it in the story. Yeah. I just thought it was funny. Marijuana maintenance program. I love that. I had to let y'all know. Yes. Now, unfortunately, there are people that think that's going to help. They do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But it's not. What's next, Shank? Okay. So next we have no real infidelity from page three. (laughs) And... It says, my drinking assumed more serious proportions, continuing all day and almost every night. The remonstrances of my friends terminated in a row and I became a lone wolf. There were many unhappy scenes in our sumptuous apartment. There had been no real infidelity for loyalty to my wife, helped at times by extreme drunkenness, kept me out of those scrapes. No real infidelity. (laughs) Mike? Oh, thanks. Um... (laughs) Um. So is there such a thing like as I'm partially pregnant? Yeah, right. <laughs> Evidently. I mean, I, he wrote it, and it like I don't have a problem with the word. I I'm like you know, a kind of I'm not going to go too far down that road. I'm okay with that word. I'm okay with it. And I'm so not it's, sure how you translate it either. So it seems like extreme drunkenness um, would impede real infidelity. Um, as I believe what they were kind of trying to say here. I do have a translation, um, which would be like an emotional affair. You know, like when people are just like texting or just like they have their quote work husband or work wife and it's just like oh they understand my job and it's an emotional affair but it's not really cheating well that that yeah that's one take i i often thought it was just interesting that he would even include it mm-hmm. and then i mean if you really wanted to analyze it it's just interesting to me so is he saying that he was he was so loyal that he he didn't cheat or that he was too drunk to I think cheat or both. both I think it's or, Bill and he's like oh I'm so hot and great and wonderful and I helped it, start this program and everyone thinks I'm amazing women were throwing uh, themselves at me and because of my loyalness yeah extreme drunkenness yeah it's a I mean it's a it's a worthless conversation really for people to stay sober but it's interesting that it almost sounds like, yeah, I tried and I wanted to, but I... I couldn't make I, it happen. Couldn't make it happen. Yeah. She kept There's thinking about my wife. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes. Yeah, I, okay, I could picture a situation where, you know, you're out drinking and you're, 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 you're making the run, but eventually the booze takes you out. Yeah. And my own experience is, is that loyalty or dr- extreme drunkenness didn't prevent me from it. Uh, th- <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- so I would have had to rewrite, there was real infidelity. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So are you all going to keep it? Well, um, oh, I think we're going to have to. I think you have to because it's, it's from his story. I mean, why, how would you, why, who... 
who would have listen mike the translations they don't make any sense okay like that's the whole point of the bit <laughs> here yeah and here's the other thing in the plain language translation i think they are going to maybe re-translate some of the stories i don't know that for sure do you know shank I don't know for sure, but I have seen some. I know there um, was debate about it. I don't know how yeah. they, what they ever, but. Well, I think maybe it was like, oh, just have definitions in the sidebar for yeah. the people yeah. that don't understand. Okay, <clears throat> moving along. Let's move along. Yeah. Our get... third and last for today, Big Book Shrapnel is a teetotaler. This comes from page 139. So it says, If you desire to help, it might be well to disregard your own drinking or lack of it. Whether you are a hard drinker, a moderate drinker, or a teetotaler, you may have some pretty strong opinions, perhaps prejudices. Those who drink moderately may be more annoyed with an alcoholic than a total abstainer would be. Drinking occasionally and understanding your own reactions, it is possible for you to become quite sure of many things which so far as the alcoholic is concerned, are not always so. As a moderate drinker, you can take your liquor or leave it alone. Whenever you want to, you control your drinking. Of an evening, you can go on a mild bender, get up in the morning, shake your head, and go to business. To you, liquor is no real problem. You cannot see why it should be to anyone else save the spineless and stupid. <laughs> so you have hard drinker, moderate drinker, or a teetotaler. Teetotaler. So my take with this is, I, I mean, I know it's total abstainer um, from alcohol. And it, uh, at that time, when the book was written, you know, you had the movements. And I don't believe prohibition had been uh, rescinded yet. So there was that the teetotaler movement. But um, my real point here is my sponsor like to ask me like we would read that and then he'd come back and go what does that word mean and um and if i even hesitated he'd be like go get the dictionary so i think it's worthwhile to people to have to like actually go find what teetotaler means or my tuesday night meeting my home group yep. we do a section called dumb words that don't mean no and we read the first 164 pages week after week, chapter after chapter. And there's a time in there, if there's a word in the reading you didn't understand, we will read to you the definition. Whether it's teetotaler, whether it's, you know, belladonna treatment, that's a popular one. Because <laughs> most people don't know. So, um, I'm okay, I, you know, what I said at the beginning, I'm okay with most of these words anyway, because I think you should just go get a dictionary and, so for me, I didn't have access to a dictionary for a long time because I was incarcerated. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I wasn't able to get sober. And I had the willingness. I did what the book told me. If I didn't understand what it meant, it really didn't matter because I wanted to stay sober. Mm -hmm. And um, but I remember my sponsor asking me at one point, 
you know, do you know what a teetotaler is? And I was just like, oh, that's someone that drinks a lot. And I don't know why I thought that. <laughs> because when you read it here, it's pretty clear that it's someone that doesn't drink at all. You know, I mean, it's plainly says hard drinker, moderate drinker, teetotaler. Like, why would that mean anything other abs- than abstinence? And I remember like when I put this on... Uh, for this episode, I couldn't remember what she told me, but I remember it was something that was kind of um, like political in nature. So I looked it up Mm -hmm. and it says the T in teetotaler likely refers to temperance activists who were totally opposed to alcohol with a capital T, um, similar to the way people used to label of capital R Republican or W Whigs. Weeks. Being a capital T teetotaler was a distinct identity. So you wanted people to know, like, I do not drink. And it was because mm. it was so controversial during that time. Like, it was an identity for people. And I remember when she told me that, I was kind of like, I don't care. Like, that's fine. I don't... <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> but I did remember... um you know that whatever I thought about it at that time was incorrect. Well, oh, so- like when you when so you, what you just read, right? If you take that definition and you reread the whole paragraph with the new knowledge, then the paragraph makes a hundred percent sense. Yeah. Oh, for sure, Mike. It yeah. should have made sense to me the first time I read it, but well, not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, like I mean, I, you know, I. Teetotaler was never one of my vocabulary words in English. And we mm-hmm. always you know, remember good old English vocabulary words. But um, it, I don't know if I had that in my school. Well, it's speaking <laughs> It's speaking to the non-alcoholic. And it's trying yeah. to get the non-alcoholic to lay aside their own experience mm-hmm. so that they can be helpful to the alcoholic. Yeah. So that they can look at the alcoholic in a different way. Mm-hmm. And if you're a, probably back then, if you were a teetotaler, you were so rigid yeah. that you could you couldn't even understand why somebody would even sniff alcohol mm-hmm. and that prevents you from looking at that person as the alcoholic as a sick person huh. um is teetotal or a word that anybody would use today i i still hear it every once in a while i think i do too however i have a translation for you all if you want it what's the translation Okay, I think the translation would be straight edge. So, I'm familiar with the term. Mm-hmm. It's you I, see that more around with like these young, like uh, like indie rocker type. Mm-hmm. Hey, if they don't use drugs or alcohol, they call them straight edges. Yes, well, use straight and- edge. And Even I do like, hear people say that they're sober um, or there's some, there's another term that I couldn't think of, but people will like reference that they don't drink, but it's more of um, like a status symbol almost. And when people, a lot of people, younger people have noticed, they're like, oh no, 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 I'm sober. And sometimes that may mean. Um, that they just have never had a drink ever. It's yeah. not like they're sober in the way of I'm an alcoholic and I had to get sober. Yeah. I I think they even refer to straight edge people as folks that have like abstained from uh, 
they're celibate too, like kids, yes. teenagers. Yes, yes. They'll call them straight edges. Yes. I think Mike might be looking it up there. Oh, I am. I'm yeah. Wait. I mean, it's what you guys said. It's um, straight edge subculture affiliated with hardcore punk scene. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Which abstain from alcohol, alcohol, tobacco, recreational drugs, and promiscuous sex. Okay. Oh, they can have. So all, uh, some also abstain from caffeine or follow a vegan or vegetarian diet. Oh. Then there was this other. What is straight edge versus sober? This one kind of kind of made me laugh a little bit. While both concepts involve abstaining from a from substance use, straight edge is more of a personal choice to refrain from intoxicants. Mm. The philosophical commitment to a set of values and beliefs that go beyond sobriety. That sentence I was kind of like, okay, yeah. it is a shared identity deeply rooted in the punk and hardcore subcultures. Okay. It's probably a little complicated for us. Teetotaler yeah. just works. Maybe maybe yeah. non-drinker. Yeah. Non-drinker. Maybe yeah. non-drinker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think we should stick with teetotaler. What do you think, Mike? I, I think I think I'm with that too. I'm, I think leave the damn book alone, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> that makes leave three the of first us. 164 alone. Go get a dictionary. I mean, so you would change. Uh, Dr. Bob's Nightmare. Oh, no, I wouldn't change that either. Oh, well. Or Bill Dawson, alcoholic number three. Best story in the book. Guy beat up two nurses. He sure did. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not sure how you can take somebody's story who wrote it and then re-edit it. That's right. It. That doesn't- yeah. Well, they've already edited it, which I think people don't know. Like, if you've ever submitted your story to GSO to be considered for a new edition they edit it they don't just let you send it to them and then they yeah, agree, whatever you like, write I so mean, um yeah i'm not gonna go much further down this road with that i just think that this idea of plain language i you know listen we know mike when we do yeah, a dedicated right. episode we might bring you on <laughs> <laughs> we may have to get some pull quotes from you about it or yes. something. bring you on yeah Mike, we appreciate you coming on with us today. It's fun. Thank you for having me. Sharing your experience. And um, hopefully that uh, if you take the 12 steps, if you're out there listening, you can find that great reality deep down with inside yourself, just like the uh, the book says. And uh, one thing's for sure, the obsession to drink can leave you and you can become free. Thanks for listening. If you have a comment, suggestion, or just need help, you can email Shank and Wayne at freedom at alcoholicsalive.com. Remember, we're recovered members of Alcoholics Anonymous, but we do not speak for Alcoholics Anonymous, nor do we get paid. Join us next week for another great episode. <laughs>